Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are starting in this collection of laws, kind of a random collection of laws in Deuteronomy. Um, remember that um, Deuteronomy is a religious revival. Um, it is a reconstruction of uh, parts of the Israelite law code. It's an addition to to parts of the Israelite law code. So um, you'd have to sit and compare what Deuteronomy has to say to what Exodus and Leviticus have to say about some of these topics. But um, Deuteronomy sometimes has a new take, sometimes elaborates, sometimes is completely different. Um, so we are getting here a collection of what seem like random laws. So we'll go through some of those until we get to the one we're going to focus on. So here you go. You shall not abuse a needy and destitute laborer, whether a fellow Israelite or a stranger, in one of the communities of your land. You must pay out the wages due on the same day before the sun sets, for the worker is needy and urgently depends on it. Else a cry to yod will be issued against you, and you will incur guilt. Remember what happens when the cry of the needy or the offended, the oppressed, goes to God. Remember what happens? Yeah. yeah. So um, you don't want that to happen and have it be against you. Let's just put it that way. Parents shall not be put to death for children, nor children be put to death for parents. They shall each be put to death only for their own crime. What you know from this is what was happening. What was happening? The opposite. Exactly right. The fact that we have this in Deuteronomy means in the ancient Near East, People were put to death for the crimes of their children and vice versa. You shall not subvert the rights of the stranger or the orphan, meaning the fatherless. You shall not take a widow's garment in pawn. Remember that you were slaves, you were a slave in Egypt and that your God, Yudhevave, redeemed you from there. Therefore, do I enjoin you to observe this commandment. When you reap in the heart, when you reap the harvest in your field and overlook a sheaf in the field, do not turn back to get it. It shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, in order that your God, Yudhevave, may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat down the fruit of your olive trees, do not go over them again. They shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not pick it over again. That shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Always remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, do I enjoin you to observe this commandment. All right. First, uh, second person singular, masculine, right? This is addressed to land-holding Israelite men, right? So this is addressed to the head of household for Israelite men. Remember, you Jew were a slave in the land of Egypt. Uh, therefore, thank you so much, Justin. Uh, therefore, you will do this because I, Yudhevafe, claim all of this. How do I get to claim it, says God? Because I freed you from, right, slavery. And therefore, I get to make claims on behalf of the stranger. When you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I took care of that for you. Therefore, I get to make these demands, right? Because I can't deal. All right, um, go to verse 4. 
You shall not muzzle an ox while it is threshing. 25.4, right? So what is this What is this talking about? You shall not muzzle an ox while it's threshing. Why not? Because it can't eat. So what's the problem? It's torture. Okay. So this is not just concerned with... Hey, David, it's not just concerned uh, with... Habitora. It's not just concerned with <clears throat> human beings. Um it, the law extends to animals that are in your employ. So if you're using them to thresh, then here are the rules so that you are not torturing. All right, everybody, look at that. Right? If that doesn't give you, like, right? Nachis? I don't know what does. Um, so you will, you are not, we're, we're looking at a little girl pressing her face to the glass. Um of the Torah study room here. It should only be, right, that all of our children are pressing their faces to the glass to learn Torah. Okay. 25.4, we just read. Deuteronomy 25.4. Now we're at 25.5. When brothers dwell together and one of them dies and leaves no offspring, the wife of the deceased shall not become that of another party outside the family. Her husband's brother shall unite with her. He shall take her as his wife and perform the lever's duty. This is leveret marriage, right? The first child that she bears shall be accounted to the dead brother, meaning the first male child she bears shall be accounted to the dead brother that his name not be blotted out in Israel. But if that party does not want to take his brother's widow to wife, his brother's widow shall appear before the elders in the gate and declare, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name in Israel for his brother. He will not perform the duty of a lever. The elders of his town shall then summon him and talk to him. They're going to talk to him. Yeah. You know about talking to him, right? Um, if he insists, saying, I do not want to take her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot, spit in his face and make this declaration thus shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house <clears throat> and he shall go in Israel by the name of the family of the unsandaled one if my brother dies and I'm supposed to take his wife as my wife if I have a wife already I'm taking her as my second wife yes okay so it doesn't matter if I'm single or married no doesn't matter and it's in order of Let's say there's a whole bunch of brothers. Which brother is the one who's, you know, doing it? The oldest? Yes. Okay. So this is during a time of, of obviously, polygamy. It, it's taken for granted in Torah. It's completely taken for granted. Okay. So, people, talk to me. So we have leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is there. Why? What is it actually about? What is leveret marriage about? So it, it's not about her being a widow. It's all about property. It's about a man dies. He doesn't have an heir. It is the obligation of his brother to give the widow the heir that he died without giving her. She's entitled to an heir so that the property does not pass to someone else right? And does not pass out of the brother's holding. It's the brother's holding still. And so the leveret marriage is about providing her with an heir to be, uh, 
done with it. It has to be a legal thing that is done at the gates. Why is it done at the gates? David? So it's public. It's done at the gate because the gate is public. That is where the judges sat. That is where things were adjudicated so that everyone could see. And if there was any question, you know, you knew what happened because you were there just last Thursday. And I'm a lawyer and I know what I'm a lawyer and I know what happens in this country if you don't have a will. Okay. What would have been the tradition in those times if one did not have an heir? One did not have a, a offspring. That's what this is addressing. But I'm asking, where would the property go if there wasn't a Levite marriage? It it went to the family, another brother. It went. It stayed within the clan. But it went to went to another brother. Right. One did not get diddly. Right. And was she at all protected? Well, that's what this is. Presumably, this is how she's protected. She has a son. Okay. Right. If she has a son, that's her. That's for protection. Um, but presumably she could marry again. Once she's freed from Leverett marriage, she's free to marry again. Um, where do we most famously see this business? Where else do we see this? Oh, my gosh. Okay. In Torah, where else do? Let me be a little clearer, British monarchy. Now, we are talking Torah. So Leverett marriage, where do we see this whole business of Leverett marriage and the sandal and all that stuff? Oh, trivia. The book of Ruth. Remember all the drama about Ruth? Who's going to marry Ruth? Who has the closest relationship relationship to being the Goel, to being the Redeemer? Right? And the whole story, all the drama turns on, is it going to be Boaz? Right? Or is it, it's not Boaz. Boaz has to wait until a closer kinsman does Chalutz does the sandal business, right? And then Boaz marries Ruth. You said in Torah, I think we would have, that threw us off. Oh, yeah. Right, Pam. Okay. Sorry. I I meant Tanakh. Sorry. Okay. I was thinking Torah. She's like, just saying, you you gave us the bad hint. Okay. Sorry there. Uh, (laughs) Everyone's a critic. Um, Why the sandal? We don't know. We don't know. Probably there was a reason at some point that made sense. We don't know. It's not preserved. Oh, wait, wait. Pass this to Dave. Dave, Well, they, okay, so I'll have to repeat the question, but. I was, I was recollecting the whole incident with Judah and meeting the person. Tamar. Tamar, yes. What what was that about? That was. Tamar was was his daughter-in-law. She dressed as a harlot, as a prostitute. He used her services because she she wanted she was owed his son and he was withholding his son. Okay. So it was a similar so issue. It, yeah. So I, yes, I, I, so she was she was deserving yeah. of marrying his third son. Okay. So Remember she was married to two, Machlon and Chilion, <laughs> they both died. Then he he didn't want to give her his last son. Okay, so Judah refused to give her his last son. But she was also protecting herself in the similar uh, of course. property. Of course. And and who is she the mother of? Who is she the ancestress of? Well, if it's Judah, it's through it, that pregnancy? It's Peretz is her son that she has. Peretz is the ancestor of the Mashiach. Okay. Of David. Therefore David. of the Messiah. Ruth is in that line as well. 
Yes, that's what I was. Ruth's progeny becomes ancestry of David, therefore ancestry of the Messiah. So in both cases, it is women who act, right? Because remember, Naomi sends Ruth in to seduce Boaz on the threshing floor. Right. Do you remember? So put put your cloak over his feet. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. A euphemism. Um, So she seduces. Look at Lee cracking up over there. So um, she seduces Boaz. um, Tamar entices Judah. In both cases, women using what they have, the power and the mechanisms that they have, sex, and to survive, in both cases, results in them becoming ancestresses of Mashiach. You don't get more righteous than that. Right? Y'all? Right? All right. Richard, what, what is this? What is, what is the, what is, what is this about? You thinking? You thinking about whether or not that's true? Okay. All right. So where, where the heck were we? You know what? No one's worried about you over there. Yeah. No one's worried about you. Can you answer the question? Like, what's with the sandal, basically? It's sort of. What's almost, with what? It's almost comical. The whole sandal throwing. The whole sandal thing? Yeah. Like, we what, don't know. Um, it's a remnant of a ritual, right, that probably at one time made some kind of sense. No, I remember in the Middle East, remember there was when that guy threw, uh, uh, threw a shoe at George Bush, and it, it, it turned out that that was like the worst insult right. you could do. So it somehow remained an insult. It, like yeah, like throwing it, your shoe at someone is like the worst thing. You yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, a, and I've never heard anything about it. Yeah. But there are, the foot is a phallic symbol, says Mark. Okay, there you have it. There is the answer. So, right, you reject, essentially you're removing the phallus from her. If you refuse to take her, you are literally removing the phallus from her grasp. And so you take off the sandal. I love it. It works for me. Yeah, I would say that. The shoe is unclean because it's like the it's the it's because it's on the ground. So it's like it all right. Lee so- is very helpfully suggesting it's about a foot fetish. Okay, so <laughs> right, you gotta love this group. So um, there are there are there's a lot in in. Okay, I'll stop sharing because my poor people at home are staring at the are at the screen. Um, there is a lot in the ancient Near East around feet. And shoes. Um, so think Jesus washing the feet. So this was a very common way of acknowledging that you are taking someone into your tent, into your home. You washed their feet as a sign of hospitality. But if you took someone in as, a, as an act of hospitality, you owed them protection with your life. So it was a huge responsibility. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the whole big sin there is that the guests are given hospitality and the, and the town is coming to assault them, right? And so you had to do anything in your power to uh, avert that because it was your sacred obligation. You had to protect them with your life. So there is, there is stuff about washing the feet, about taking off the shoes, washing the feet. There's a midrash that Moshe... Um, put his hands under his mother Yocheved's feet the whole 40 years in the desert so that she wouldn't um, 
burn her feet on the sand. Like so there's all this stuff about feet and shoes and sandals. And so I don't know what that has to do with anything. But um, but also remember at the burning bush, God says to Moses, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. So it was remove your shoes so that your if it's holy ground, you don't put your your dirty sandals right on the Yes, correct. And in the mosque, right? One removes one shoes. Okay. Are we done? Are we done with the sandals now? Are we, are we, are we moving on? I guess not. Okay. All right. So let's go. Let's, let's look. Uh, um, we're going to jump to 14. You shall not have in your house alternate measures, a larger and a smaller. You must have completely honest weights and completely honest measures if you are to endure long on the soil that Adonai your God is giving you. For everyone who does those things, everyone who deals dishonestly is abhorrent to Adonai your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt, how undeterred by fear of God Amalek surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when Yudhe grants you safety from all your enemies around you in the land that your God is giving you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. Do not forget. So this is a very interesting, very interesting commandment. You shall wipe out the memory of Amalek. Don't forget. So, like, you have to love that, right? So... If you blot out their memory, how do you not forget? Right? Isn't that kind of forgetting? Right? So it's this very interesting um, statement that we get about um, about Amalek. We were we were prevented from we were barred from marrying certain folks who would have been associated with Amalek. Um, apparently, there is a memory of an attack by Amalek that was so anti the understood rules of war that was so heinous that um, it is preserved in our text. Okay, so this whole thing, this whole business of all these laws, this is just kind of, it feels to us a pretty random collection. We can assume that it is parallel to another collection that didn't feel quite so random. Um, In the ancient Near East, to their law codes, Right, that there was a there was a understanding of why these things are linked together that we just don't have anymore, um, and so so the the kind of random nature of this the, added to the fact that the um, rabbis who then have to take this once the, the exile happens and we are no longer in the land and we are no longer owners of the field we are no longer agricultural. Um, landowners, we're no longer farmers, right? It's very easy to say, okay, well, these texts don't matter anymore. Like none of this matters anymore. And including there's a lot in here that we didn't read that's about um, going to war. What happens when you go to war? And so the choice is always, do we reconstruct these? Or do we say, doesn't matter to us anymore. We're not, we don't live in the land of Israel. We haven't for a long time. So this doesn't mean anything. We skip these parts 
Of course, that is not the choice that the tradition made. It's not the choice that the rabbis made. The rabbis instead choose to reconstruct the meaning of these texts. For all of these texts that are talking about, and again, we didn't read them. Um, it's the whole first part of the Parsha. Um, all of these texts dealing with war and going to war, the rabbis understood it and translated it as similar to the Sufi concept of jihad. So the rabbis really understand um, this as about the inner landscape and when one goes to war against the evil inclination. All war gets reconstructed in the rabbinic reading of all the Torah, all the stuff about war. Can you keep it down out there, Rabbi? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, that... Uh, all of the texts about going to war uh, in Torah get reconstructed by the rabbis to mean going to war against one's own lesser appetites, one one's own desires for things that are from the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. So I challenge you to, if you look at any of the laws from the beginning of the Parsha, I challenge you to figure out how the rabbis did that with these texts. They are very clever. Um, we come from a clever group. All right, but we're going to look at this whole business of reaping. So if you are an Israelite landowner, this is how most people made their living, is that they were farmers. Um, and so, again, like we said, it is second, plur- plurson. second person singular masculine, all of these commandments. So it is, it is, to the head of household that all of this is directed. When you, Israelite, male, head of household, go to put everyone to work harvesting your fields, here's what will happen. Right? Yeah, Mark. In Hebrew, the second person masculine is not the familiar. What do you mean it's not the familiar? The the form that's used to address uh, children or inferiors and so on. The way... It's usually y'all. I guess that's what I'm lifting up. It's singular, not as opposed to plural. So it's not y'all. It's each of you, male, singular, heads of household. It's not all y'all. It's just y'all. It's not all y'all. Not even y'all. Forget all y'all. It's not even y'all. It is you, Um, right, Mr. Abramson, right, when you go to cause your fields to be harvested, here's what's going to happen. Okay, so when you reap the harvest in your field and you overlook a sheaf, what is the law? You are not allowed to to go back and pick it up. It shall go to whom? To the most vulnerable in an agricultural settled society. Who is that? That is the ger, the stranger, the one who does not have a male protector, the fatherless, and the widow, a woman who does not have a male protector. Those are the most vulnerable in any society that is about male land ownership and an agrarian culture, right? That's a stranger. The stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. In many places, some places, no. Like, it depends. If it's matriarchal and matrilineal, no, they're not the most vulnerable. An unattached male would be the most vulnerable, right? An example of, 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 I, I don't have them in front of me, but they, 
you know, they're, they're all over. Read the book, The Chalice and the Blade. There are, there's a long history, pre-patriarchy of matrilineal and matrilocal cultures. A long history before patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they were egalitarian for the most part. So that's why we don't hear a lot about them. So uh, Mark is saying that, that matriarchy, matrilineal cultures, and matrilocal cultures are actually more stable uh, because one always knows who's the mother, who the mother is, not necessarily who the father is. P.S. This is why uh, Jews, whether you're Jewish or not, is determined by the mother. It was a rabbinic act of legislation that was an act of compassion and kindness to women who, or to families who, when women were being raped as an act of war by people attacking Jewish villages, if you have any doubt, if you know she's raped, if there's any doubt about paternity, if you think it's the Cossack, then her son is a mamzer and cannot marry within the Jewish people. Well, you can't marry outside the Jewish people if you're a Jew because no one will have you. So therefore, your child is 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 doomed to a life of isolation and 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 never having a family and therefore the rabbis ruled that you are jewish if your mother is jewish because everyone knows who the mother is there's no question about that and therefore it could not be questioned that this child is jewish and has legal status within the jewish community to marry um so lots of people get all upset when we start talking about Right, it's determined by the uterus, and I get why people are upset. I totally understand it. I just want us to be clear. We should always be clear where it comes from before we just get upset, <laughs> right? So, um, we, of course, in the Reconstructionist world and in Reform Judaism as well, recognize egalitarian descent. Whether either parent is Jewish and the child is raised as Jewish, we consider that child fully Jewish. Um, and the Reconstructionist movement has ruled. If any biological piece of the puzzle is Jewish, the child is Jewish. Sperm donor, egg donor, uterus, or whatever, then the child, and it's raised Jewish, the child is Jewish. Okay, we're at verse 20. Yes? When you beat down the fruit of your olive trees, do not go over them again. That shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not pick it over again. That shall go to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So when you harvest your olives, right, you anything that falls that you don't get, it stays on the ground for the poor, for the uh, almanah and the yatom and the ger, and same with uh, harvesting in the vineyard. Right? You can't go back and get grapes you missed. That belongs to the poor. Okay. So now let's go to the Torah.com and we're going to go to all essays because I did not get all this loaded up last night. So we're going to look at these um, laws and here we have, here's a total collection of the agricultural allocations for the poor. We have Deuteronomy 24:19 and 20 and 21 that we just read. The grain in the field, the olive grove, the vineyard. We look at Leviticus 19, we get grain in the field and the vineyard. 
When we look at all of them together, one, two, three, four, five, six kinds, we're on page two, we get six kinds of, of ways that the vulnerable are taken care of in an agricultural society. Gleanings, forgotten sheaves, edges of the field, olives on the tree, going over the grapevine, fallen or separated fruit, right? So these are known as lekat, shichacha, and peah, for the most part, the first three. Um, what's interesting is that our author points out that the obligations here are all passive. So it does, it's not something one does by agency, right? So the person leaves the sheaves that fall. They leave the olives that they don't get. They leave the grapes that are not harvested the first time. These are all thou shalt not commandments, right? So you just refrain from doing something. And that is how uh, God distributes produce from, shifts it from the landowner to the poor. The landowner is not actively handing over or distributing anything, right, from their own pocket, which is how we tend to think, right, about all of these things is giving. Because in then the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and he has a footnote to a longer article somewhere else that you are welcome to go read, um, the owner of the field can't give these items. The owner of the field can't give this or distribute it. Why? It's not his. Exactly right. It is God's. Well, actually, it's the poor's, right? But the the owner can't give it because the owner has no rights to it. It doesn't belong to the owner of the field. All of it belongs to God, and God allocates it to the poor. So you're not giving anything. You are refraining from taking that which belongs to somebody else. It belongs to the ones that are allowed to come harvest it. So he then takes us to the bottom of page three and says, although agricultural allocations to the poor share some characteristics with charity, they function differently. Charity is a positive duty whose underlying premise is that it comes from one's own personal property and the benefactor exercises some discretion over what is given and how. Thus, in their discussion of charity, the rabbis do not specify the time or place for when it should be given. Why? Because it comes from me. It's mine. And therefore, I have a right to determine when and how and how much I give. The biblical laws of harvest allocations, in contrast, have traits that are typically characterized as acts of justice. While charity is defined by personal discretion, justice is devoid of it. Whereas the laws of charity do not allow for the recipient to claim that they are owed anything in particular, systems of justice provide the recipients with correlative rights. They have rights to it. With charity, they, right, it, it's nothing in particular that they can demand. But with justice, they can because it's their right, right? Since the agricultural allocation laws do have specific requirements about what the householder must do and to whom they are characterized as acts of justice and not charity. Okay, so in thinking about this and in looking at this, my question to you is in what way is tzedakah, because that's our word, right? So when we talk about 
charity in the Jewish world, when we talk about it as a Jewish concept, we still talk about tzedakah, right? This is our word for charity. What is the shoresh? What's the root? David? Yep. Right? I don't know how to print. Um, so tzedek, right? Tzedek. Justice. Righteousness. That is the root of tzedakah. Tzedek, tzedek, tzedek dov. Justice, justice shall you pursue. So how is it, given what we just learned, how is charity tzedakah? Charity is a personal choice. And uh, there's no, if you're a poor person, a vulnerable person, you have no rights to what I might choose to give you. While uh, the agricultural issue is one of rights. And you went off each week on a toot about uh, issues of poverty and to the extent that you almost feel as though it is justice. Okay. So... Why do we call charity tzedakah? Because we don't have those rights established any longer. We have to find some other way to give to the poor and the widow and the childless. But the rights are now federal programs or state programs. Ah, so that is not right. That is not Jewish. That is national. That's the law. Yes, but that's right. the law. So, that, that so that's... Definition of justice in this case is what's legal. Well, okay, so wait, wait. So, okay, so there's two things. We're conflating a couple of things. But I, it's good. That's what I want. Okay. I mean, I don't want to conflate them. I want to pull them apart. But that's exactly yeah. the conversation is the United States of America feels that justice is enacted when everybody is taxed so that the most vulnerable don't fall below a certain threshold, right? That that is what is just, and that's why it's the law, right? Because it's understood to be justice. Okay, so that's that's American law. Let's talk Jewish. Things have changed. Mark? I don't know if this really is a response to the, what you're raising, but it seems to me that all of Deuteronomy, including this notion of justice, revolves around a way of trying to control uh, the power of wealth, the concentration of power through values, through ideals. And that justice then uh, is a, an ideal uh, which is uh, posited uh, as a, a, an attempt to impose it as something being more powerful than the power of accumulated wealth. Correct. And what is the value? What is the underlying value that Torah uses? It's not yours. That's the value that Torah employs is it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. Right? And so, right, it all belongs to God. There is no place devoid of God. It is all God. And it doesn't belong to you. So you don't get to use it. Now, so the rabbis had a choice. The rabbis easily could have said, well, that doesn't work anymore. We don't own our land anymore. We are now merchants in medieval Europe. So guess what? This goes out the window. That is not the move they made. That's what's interesting to me about this article. 
I don't, I take it so for granted that I don't think about it until I read this. And then I go, what an incredibly radical act to keep the term tzedakah for charity that now does come out of my property, that does come out of my pocket, that is discretionary. They kept the term tzedakah because they never gave up the value, the ultimate value that justice means by definition the poor are taken care of. And who does that fall on? The wealthy for sure. But even according to the Talmud, a poor person is required to give tzedakah to someone more poor than them. Nobody, nobody is exempt from giving tzedakah. Justice overrides all of the other terms. Well, what's interesting to me, right, is that tzedakah, having it come from justice, means it's really not discretionary, right? It's it's an undergirding understanding of the uh, a philosophy that says, by definition, if you don't give, you are unjust and. I don't think I really understood how radical an idea that was. I always point it out when I'm in non-Jewish settings that we don't have a word for charity. Charity comes from caritas. It comes from the heart being moved. We don't have such a word. Our word is tzedakah. It comes from justice. I, I talk about that a lot as a rabbi, and I'm very proud of that. I, but I think I still took for granted a radical move. When did this take place? When did they flip? When, 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 when we no longer owned land in Israel, when, once the exile happens, got out of agricultural. so 70, when the Romans destroyed the second temple, right. and we no longer have sovereignty, and now we are dispersed living on other people's land that we were not allowed to own, right. they could have just said, well, now we earn a living and we give out of our paycheck what we want. So we, we need a new word, Right. I don't think I realized how incredibly radical it is that they kept the term and said, okay, we don't own the land, but the, but the philosophy, but the overarching value of the responsibility on me who has to take care of those who don't has not changed. Who were the big names uh, in that time period? Who, who's the big names in which time period? Talking about post- 70 AD, destruction of the temple. So the, the it's dispersion all over. It's not a Rambam. Who's the? What? Yeah, the Rishonim, the first, the first ones discussing the law in the Mishnah, first and second century uh, rabbis, the first ones. But who was? Do they have any names, or do they just go by the name, the first ones? No, the, the of course they have names. So I, look them up, Rishonim. There you go, on Wikipedia. What spell it, Rishonim? R-I-S-H-O-N-I-M, Rishonim. Moses ben Meir, Eliezer ben Shmuel, Emmanuel of Rome, Benjamin ben Judah. I mean, we, we have a list as long as our arm. Hmm? Yes. 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 So um, that's the beauty of our tradition is that the, the Rishonim are still arguing with each other and those who come after them, the Amoraim and the Tanaim, all of them are arguing with the Rishonim. Okay, so David is saying that there was a lecture here at KI that talked about Hillel and Shammai, two of our Rishonim, who were... Strasfeld. Oh, Michael Strasfeld, of course. My buddy Michael Strasfeld. All right, that's right. You can get it. You can get... Right, we recorded that. Right. You can, it's, Look at the podcasts. Rabbi Michael Strasfeld came in and taught. 
Very nice. Okay, thank you. David, that, that, was, that was a long one. That was a tough one. Okay, I totally get it. I totally get it. I'm just teasing. Um, so I don't tease, you know, unless I love you. I never tease unless I love you. So um, the uh, I'm getting to you, Emelinda. The the chiddush is, I think that David was getting to, is um, we kind of throw around the rishonim. We kind of throw around the mishnah and who and the big shots that are arguing. Um, and what we sometimes forget is the huge project that they had to take the the Israelite cult and turn it into a practice that one could do without the temple right. It was an insanely huge project and would not have succeeded had there not been a group pushing against the temple cult and doing its own thing in Babylonia after the first exile, right? That's the reason Hillel and Shammai had something to work with is because the folks who never came back from Manhattan to go back to Jerusalem because they liked it in Manhattan, they already had a project going, and that's what Hillel and Shammai could base it on. As a farmer, it's easy to say, well, I didn't grow all this stuff. But then as a businessman or a merchant, you can also, you know, like it's not all because of you. But, you know, it's, it's sort of translating that, uh, well, just because it's a different profession, um, it's not be, it's not solely because of your brilliance. Like with a farmer, yes, if they don't plant anything, nothing happens, but they don't do it all by themselves. It was sort of transferring that to this new thing. But but my as you were saying this and I was looking at this, I was thinking that the um in a way this notion that we're supposed to copy God or emulate God, uh so ultimately you can think of it as um instead of as a negative, like, oh now I have to Still give charity. Oh my God. This is terrible. You know, that, that God gets to, um, bestow everything. And then we get to, we get to participate a little bit. Um, so he, you know, or he, she, whatever, you know, uh, um, bestows it to us. And now, oh, great. Now I get to play God a little bit by giving yes. away some of that yes. and, and, and down and down the line. Beautiful. So, a beautiful so, reconstruction, David. Yeah. Um, beautiful, right? That, Imitatio Dei is actually an empowering thing. It's actually empowering to say. It's not just, oh, I have this obligation. I have to sacrifice something, you know, pleasurable that I want to give to those schnorers. It's actually, I get to be like God. That's right. I get to be the deliverer of justice. That's exactly right. It's empower, you're godding. You're, it's an empowering position. I think it's also why Torah demands that even the poor give tzedakah for partly for that reason, because it protects the dignity of the giver because it's easy for us to think about what we don't have. That's really easy. So what, and, and it's partly cultural, right? Like if one is lifted up by one's peers and culture for giving like that, that's considered a good thing that you're a mensch that right now, not an idiot. Some people say you give money away to poor people. You're an idiot. So we've heard that pretty publicly. So there, that's one way to look at it. But if you don't see it that way, if you see it as you're actually a mensch and that's actually, it makes you, cause it doesn't just mean justice. Tzedek also means righteousness. It makes you a righteous person. If that's the culture you grow up in, then giving is even more pleasurable, right? Because it says some, because it allows us to feel good about 
who we are. You get to play God in a good way. Okay, Emma Linda. No, we're going to Emma Linda, who has asked a question a really long time ago. Um, is the implication that the giving is optional for non-Jews, but mandatory for Jews? So the implication, I don't know, because the rabbis don't care, right? The Torah, neither the Torah nor the rabbis care. All they care about is what is mandatory for Jews. What, what, the, what the Goyim do, the Goyim do, like, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, they, they didn't care. That wasn't their project, um, which says more about the way we read these things, right? Because we want to read it from a wait. Well, what does that mean about everybody? There wasn't. There wasn't anything about everybody else. Who cares? It's what do we have to do? That's our project. You know, the, the big project David was talking about. Like, how do we take all this stuff now that we don't live in the land of Israel? Now that we're not farmers, how do we do tzedek? How do we do tzedakah in our new circumstance? That's a huge project. Every single part of Torah had to be translated into, well, what now? <laughs> right? Is what does that mean for us now? Right? And then that's why we have the Talmud, because it's a bunch of arguing. They couldn't decide what it meant now. But but there are some places we agree, and one of them is that Jews have to continue to give to is that Brian Harnick? <gasps> Hi Brian, welcome. You look fabulous. I, okay. I am doing great. Thank you. Oh, my God. You look fabulous. You look so strong. I'm so happy. I started gaining weight about two weeks ago. I'm doing great. Oh, Thank I'm you. I'm so happy. Yeah. I'm so happy. Oh, yay. Um, so uh, the bracha that we say is mechaye hametim. Baruch atadonai Eloheinu melech olam mechaye hametim. Blessed are you, God, who gives life to the dead. Truly, that you are back from the dead is... Is a beautiful thing. Okay. It's also interesting that it's an original form, says Lee. Uh, tzedakah puts more agency in the hands of the receiver. They can take what they need rather than being dependent on what the giver has decided they need. That's exactly right, Lee. Um, that's exactly right. That also is the thing that the rabbis talk about. How when we move to this model of giving tzedakah, Maimonides, Rambam is very concerned about this. How do we make sure we're preserving what you're pointing out that the the harvest was happening everybody who owned land or was employed was harvesting the way the rabbis understand this way of giving tzedakah to the poor preserved their dignity because they came to harvest they came to do what everybody else was doing to get their food it wasn't handed to them at the food pantry they didn't right so they they worked if you will and came to claim what was theirs the same way everybody else was and the rabbis especially Maimonides is very concerned with how do we continue to do that with tzedakah what is Maimonides rule do you remember what's the highest form of tzedakah anonymous anonymous what giving to whom an anonymous recipient yes that is the highest form for Rambam to work for sure, but if it's yes, to employ them for sure. But if it's about giving, if it's about giving charity, you give anonymously to an anonymous recipient. That is the highest form because it preserves all the way around dignity, dignity. Um, that you don't get to go. Oh, you know, I actually gave to Carol Solomon last week. You know, she's thinking she's all that. Well, 
I wrote her a check last week. That's been an argument go, ongoing in every right? synagogue in the, about country, Carol? in the world. Yes, I've, no, heard, I've, heard, it. I've heard that about Carol. But, you know, it seems to me that this movement from an agrarian society where it was very clear how it how you gave to the poor uh, to a, an industrial society and the changes that had to take place in society are the whole basis of Reconstructionism because you have to adapt to the changes in the world culture. Well, the rabbis were ahead of, yes, ahead of, you know, I mean, they really from the get-go said, we are not going to dump this, we're going to reconstruct it. Yes. And so we, I just feel like we stand on their shoulders. Yes. We're just honest about it. We don't pretend that nothing changed from Sinai to now. We're just honest. That's what they were doing. They were reconstructing the whole thing. Well, he called it what it is, an evolving religious civilization. He just named it what it actually is, what it's always been. George? Yes, the the fact that the farmers using God's land. Uh, I've always said that all success clearly belongs to the individual and what have you. But whatever it is, there's a little luck. There's a lot of luck. Uh, yeah. There's not and, just and luck. Was, well, oh, no, I'm not no, no. saying it's no. just luck. We're probably saying opposite things, by yeah. the way. With, no, <laughs> I you, bet you've you. got to be competent in all, but you can also, I'd rather be lucky than good, you know, that act. <laughs> but the, the point that I'm making is that, for, at least for me, I mean, I've said this a lot, that all, there's luck involved in all success. How much is a different issue? Sure. But that, that luck is, in fact, could be interpreted as, again, we are using God's, Overall, look at you, George. Oh, look it's, at you. It's absolutely look at scary. you. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely scary. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yes. It's terrifying. You have changed my mind. You're a convert. <laughs> I'm loving this. George Walcon just said that, that one could understand luck. <laughs> okay. You heard it from George, people. You heard it from George. Um, okay. So, um, right. So that. That we understand our philosophy is because whether it's lucky, whether it's blessing, whether it's whatever, you are not on third because you hit a triple. It starts in this text. You are not on third because you did anything. You got there. Yeah, you hit the ball and you ran. But there was a lot that happened before that that got you to third. You were walked. And that is the sentence, I took you out of Egypt. Because what should you be right now? All y'all, all y'all, kulchem, all y'all. You should all be slaves. That's all you're entitled to. I took you out. And because I took you out, I have a right to demand. And it starts in Deuteronomy, David, with don't when you get there, says Moshe, don't when you get there say, my hands did all this. Even about the farmer. Maybe it's easier for them to tie rain and, and fertility of the soil to God. Maybe. But Moshe didn't think so. Our character Moshe. Moshe says, when you get there and you have a harvest, don't say to yourself, the work of my hands did this. <laughs> you got walked. <laughs> so that, right, Rick? Right? Yeah. That entitles the poor to a portion of what you have because it's not yours and you didn't earn it. I freed you so you could have your fancy job in your corner office. 
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.